0: Lord, we thank you for your kindness today, we thank you for your gospel, uh, we thank you that you have breathed out your word for our benefit, Lord, so that we can truly understand who you are and what you've done and what you desire of us. And so, Lord, today I just ask that you would use me as your mouthpiece, that you would um, you would speak through uh, my words, my meager efforts, Lord, that your word would go forth, and Lord, what we... Uh, Are not, would you make us, Lord, what we know not, uh, would you teach us, and what we have not, Lord, would you give us, we ask in your precious holy name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. In Mark's gospel, we are confronted by three questions. We've gone over this before, but let me remind you what they are. Uh, The first question has to do with identification. It is asking the question, who is this Jesus? Jesus. And, of course, this is a gospel, a good news about Jesus. The second question um, is summarized by the word mission. What has Jesus come to do? And we've seen that he is on his way to Jerusalem, in particular on his way to get to the cross, where he will die and suffer in our place. And the third question has to do with the word response. Having looked at um, his identification and his mission, what will we do then? What will the readers of this gospel do in response to that declaration of who he is? And so as we go through Mark's gospel, we're always asking these questions because these are the questions that he is seeking to answer. And one of the ways that Mark, as well as the other gospel writers, seek to show us who Jesus is, that he's the son, he's the Christ, he's the son of God, is to show us his power In particular, in his performing of miracles. Now in Mark's gospel in particular, uh, we have a, a number of miracles that are on display for us. He heals the paralytic that was brought to him by four men. He heals the withered hand on the Sabbath. He calms the storm when the disciples are in the boat. He casts out demons into pigs. He delivers a boy from an unclean spirit. He feeds the multitudes with fish and loaves. He heals a a different blind man on two different occasions. He opens up the ears of a deaf man. He heals the woman with an issue of blood. He raises a little girl from the dead. These are all incredible stories and incredible miracles of Jesus who is harnessing his divine power to create change in the life of these individuals, but ultimately to declare to those who are around him that he is the Christ, the Son of God. But we come today to another amazing story. And it's a story that demonstrates another miracle, but not like these miracles. The miracle here is Jesus cursing a fig tree. And he comes into Jerusalem on his way. He sees this tree. Ultimately, he curses it because it doesn't produce any fruit. When he comes out of Jerusalem, we find that just in one day, that tree has withered down to its roots. That is a miracle, friends. He spoke it, and it happened. But it's a different kind of miracle because we usually think of miracles that bring life and health and healing. But this miracle brings withering and ultimate death. It is a miracle nonetheless, and it's an opportunity for us to once again see Jesus in his beauty as this Christ, as the Son of God. But this miracle has a purpose. And this miracle in particular is to point us to the failure of man-made religion that is cursed by God and will never bear spiritual fruit because it is empty of the good news of the gospel. Well, let's just think about the structure of this passage. It really is structured by the the journey that is going on. Jesus and the disciples, first of all, are journeying to Jerusalem. That's when he encounters the fig tree. Then the next episode is Jesus entering into the temple, and we typically would call that his cleansing of the temple. He encounters the buyers and the sellers and the money changers and so on. And then the third stage is Jesus returning from Jerusalem, where Jesus encounters the fig tree again. Again. And so for this morning, as we as we begin our passage here, I want to kind of lay out really where this text is taking us, and then seek to show you how that is true from the passage that we have just read. It is this: Jesus confronts man-made religion head on. And he calls us, and that would be his readers. Or those who are listening to the gospel being read in the churches and in the places, in particular in Rome. He calls them to exercise faith in Christ, that would be himself, and to believe in him alone. He confronts man-made religion. You see, the the, the text reveals to us that religion is a man-made system that stands in opposition to Christ. Many times, you know, the world, society, calls Christianity just another one of the religions. But Christianity is so different than any other, quote, quote, religion out there. Other religions promote so success or, or arriving by the things that you do in order to merit that stature. But when it comes to Christianity, it has nothing to do with what we have worked at, or what we have accomplished to stand before God and say, see, look at me, look at me. That is not how it works in the context of Christianity. So there's a sense in which Christianity isn't really a religion. It is the truth. It is the gospel. It is the way that God is seeking to reconcile people to himself. And so here we have an appeal to all who are reading or listening this gospel to stop putting their faith in something that won't deliver. To stop putting their hopes in what continues to keep you in bondage. Instead, we're called to put our faith in Christ and be truly forgiven. So let's begin by, by looking at um, the, the Jesus who is cursing this fig tree. Verses 12 through 14. Let's read this section and consider what is happening. On the following day, when they came from Bethany... He was hungry, that's Jesus, he's hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So let's just walk through that a little bit here. Jesus comes from Bethany, which is on the Mount of Olives, about two miles outside of Jerusalem. It's on a mountain. You go down into the valley, and you come up again into Jerusalem. And as, as they're making that journey, Jesus is hungry, a reminder of his humanity, that he is the God-man, a reminder of his incarnation, that he is in this place where he is getting hungry. And off in the distance, he notices a promising opportunity to satisfy that hunger. He sees a fig tree, and it's in leaf. And what that means is when a fig tree is in leaf, there should be some fruit there, even if it's small fruit. And so he goes over to that fig tree, and he looks around, kind of pokes around the fig, uh, the fig leaves. Now, you've, anyone seen a fig tree before? They're not little tiny leaves, are they? They're big leaves. And so you kind of have to lift them up and see, and sometimes it's like, oh, wow, there's, there's a fruit, Right? Um, And so Jesus is looking for that fruit, and he is unable to find any fruit. And so his hunger is not satisfied. But then he does something that seems so very out of character for him. He curses the fig tree by saying, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, why would Jesus curse a fig tree of all things? I mean... Isn't this just a little over the top, even for Jesus? It just seems like a knee-jerk reaction. It's just kind of like, you know, oh, you don't have any hot dogs left? What's up with you, man? You know, I mean, that's, I get that. You go to the ballpark, and you want some food, and it's not there. But even Mark makes sure that he adds this little detail that, that the disciples even heard what Jesus said. What Jesus said was supposed to be heard. Now, that's the story. Now, let's just think about the struggle. And I would say that there are many who read this story struggle with this. And let me just give you some some people or some theologians who have struggled in the past. Here's one. His name is Joseph Klausner. He writes that this cursing of the fig tree was a gross injustice on a tree which was guilty of no wrong. Now, there are plenty of tree huggers in California that would align with him. Another man, T.W. Manson, said, It is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill-temper for the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expended in forcing a crop of figs out of season and as it stands is simply incredible. In other words, what a waste of energy. He should have produced fruit rather than killed the tree. Well, I'm sure Jesus will take his opinion into consideration. William Barclay says, the story does not seem worthy of Jesus, there seems to be a petulance in it. And I think that may be a sentiment that many that read this, even within the body of Christ, are just like, what is going on here? Why would Jesus do something like this? But then the the atheist Bertrand Bertrand Russell accuses Jesus of vindictive fury. And wrote of our Lord's character, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. In other words, when he reads this, his view of Christ just went down here. Why is that? Because they don't understand what's going on here. Do these men really have a leg to stand on? The answer, of course, is no. Are they right about Jesus acting with ill temper and wasting his miraculous power? The answer is no. Or maybe there's something else going on that Mark wants us to see. And so I want to present to you what the solution is based on Mark and how Mark and even Jesus, because Mark is recording what Jesus does, uses encounters to illustrate things that he is going to do or he is going to say. Now, let's first of all notice what is not going on in this text. There's no anger, right? He's just cursing the fig tree. I may have overstated it when I, I put a little kind of tone into my words there in describing this. There's no anger. There's no malice. There's no temper tantrum. This isn't Jesus having a meltdown because he's not getting his figs. No, what we have here is an object lesson. It's an acted out parable of what is about to take place in the temple. So what is going on in this text? This is an illustration to help us understand what Jesus will do when he gets to the temple. Now listen, if you've been walking with us through Mark's gospel, when we are in chapter 8, something similar happened. If you remember, Jesus encounters this blind man. And he heals this blind man. But he does it in two stages. You remember that? The first time he opens his eyes and he just sees like these trees walking. He says, it's all fuzzy. It's not clear. And then Jesus applies some more, I think, mud to his his eyes and stuff. And then he can see clearly. And that was a, a, a purposeful illustration for what he was about to reveal. Because in that context, Jesus then asks the disciples, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, says, Well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he's like, You're right. You said that rightly. And then he says, And the Son of Man is going to have to go to Jerusalem. And he's going to be, he's going to be mocked and scored uh, and, and tormented by the leaders. And ultimately, he's going to be crucified. And he's going to rise again. And what does Peter do? He rebukes Jesus. Why? Because Peter had the right answer, but he didn't understand what that answer meant, it wasn't clear. Jesus uses the illustration to help us understand we can also be people who have this fuzzy view of what God says. It's not a clear view. So the illustration helps us to understand the point. And that is what's happening here. Here we have in chapter 11 a different point that Jesus will be making. Jesus will judge and condemn Israel or anyone who claims to be one thing but is really another. Or who who put... On a show, but do not produce. Or who promise reconciliation and restoration with God, but do not deliver on that promise. It is an illustration of empty promises. Jesus is hungry. He sees the tree. There's there's leaves on the tree. He goes to the tree. There's leaves, yes, but there's no fruit. It promised something. It was screaming something. Come here. I've got what you need. But when you get there, there's nothing there to satisfy you. And that's what it had become to Israel, especially in the temple and the religious leaders who were overseeing its operation. They gave outward appearance of of great spirituality and devotion to God but proved to be hypocrites. I mean, consider this. The Gentiles were forced only to enter into the temple in a specific area, it was restricted. The poor were exploited by the money changers and the merchants that were there. The temple culture had grown to be big and impressive, but it was all a sham and Jesus cursed them for it. There's no longer any gospel, there's no longer any emphasis on the God of Israel to be found. For those who were needing salvation, the temple that was once a beacon of light to the nations had now become a faint flicker that was about to be extinguished. Now, what is this fig tree? The prophets of Israel often spoke of Israel by the symbol of a fig tree. And if you want to join with me, just turn to Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 13. If you're having difficulty finding Jeremiah, it's kind of right in the heart, in the middle of the Bible. It's a major prophet. Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 13. I'm actually going to begin at verse 8 and following. Or you can just listen. This is what Jeremiah is saying. or God is saying through Jeremiah. How can you say, we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord so that wisdom is in them. A little further down in in verse 10. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. In other words, they're not taking seriously the condition of man. Verse 12, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were uh, were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen when I punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Now, that's just one passage that brings in this imagery of a fig tree as a, as a means of declaring to the people of Israel, this is what you should be, but this is what you are. So when Jesus arrives at the fig tree and found nothing but leaves, Mark also informs us that it was not the season for figs. This was a this is an empty promise. The leaves betrayed that no fruit exists to satisfy the hunger. And in the same way, the temple stood out as the place where spiritual hunger should be satisfied. But the leaves of the magnificent building, the leaves of the ongoing sacrifices, the leaves of the religious activity and the songs of worship, all of that stuff betrayed that the fire in the temple was almost out friends, we all know what man-made religion can look like. It can have all sorts of things going on. It can look very beautiful and spiritual, but it can be void, void of anything that would be truly gospel-centered. So the temple no longer provided what it boasted. It promised salvation, reconciliation, gladness and joy, but it offered none of that. The promise of the temple was a fraud. And as a result, the people were still in bondage and still spiritually hungry. As friends, that's a sad state of affairs, isn't it? But there are churches all over the world who were once gospel-centered, where the word of God was preached, Where the life of that church was because of what Jesus Christ had done for them. And so in those churches, the the, the good news was, was on display, but today they stand as museums. Magnificent structures with beautiful stained glass windows and ornate architecture. And they still, they still offer promises. Here is where you can meet God. Here is where the gospel will be preached. Here is where you can be set free. But when you go inside, there is nothing but emptiness and coldness. There may be religious activity, there may be choirs off in the corner. There may be candles lit. There may be beautiful uh, buildings that are spotless and clean. And there might be this aura of kind of contemplation going on. And the windows may be beautiful with their color and pictures painted on the wall. But there's no good news preached from the pulpits. There's no hope in the God of the Bible. And there's no Christian distinction at all. And friends, here is the principle that should cause shivers to go up and down our spine. It is possible that fruitlessness now will result in fruitlessness forever. In other words, what Jesus was going to do with the temple because it was unfruitful was going to be a forever distinction. Now, certainly in the new age, it's going to be a new temple. But the temple there, Herod's temple, it's done. It's over. Fruitlessness now can result in fruitlessness forever. May that never be said of us, and may that never be said of this church. So Jesus is cursing the fig tree. Now we're going to actually get to the point of it because we had that illustration to see Jesus now confronting the temple. And so this this event when Jesus comes into the temple and turns over the tables is often referred to as Jesus' cleansing of the temple. But listen, Jesus is not cleansing it. (laughs) He's not reforming it. If there was any cleansing going on, it was just but for a moment. The very next day, the same very things were going on, okay? Okay? It's not like, okay, great, the temple's all been reset, all right? They didn't have like a, you know, a reboot button there, and Jesus pressed it, and there it is, all right? The temple's all clean now, no, no, no. He went in there, and what he did in the temple was not just to interact with the people there, but it was to make a statement about the condition of the temple. It was the heart of Jerusalem, and of course, the heart of Jerusalem was the temple, And it promised so much. So when you're coming down this hill, if any of you have been to Israel, you've seen Jerusalem, old Jerusalem, you're coming down the hill and you're looking over, you see the temple, it's standing there in all its glory. It's a magnificent facility. And you cannot help but notice it. Huge walls, lots of buildings, a lot of ornate things going on there. It, It screamed, something important is happening here. but in reality, it offered very little. So Jesus does two things. He takes action and he teaches. Now, Sometimes actions speak louder than words. We all know that. Actions by themselves, however, may not paint the full picture, but when they're accompanied by words, they add to the weight of what is being said. A number of years ago, there was a Kind of a, a public service announcement that was put on TV. I'm sure many of you remember it. It was put out by the, the, the Partnership for a Drug-Free America. It showed a picture of a very hot frying pan with bubbling oil in it. And you just kind of like, oh, what's going on here? And then all of a sudden, psh, someone cracked an egg, put an egg in there, and let it sit for a while. And then you heard the words, this is your brain on drugs. Visual image with words communicates a truth in a profound way so it was a a powerful picture and friends that is what we have going on here so let's notice what jesus did here is jesus taking action first of all notice that he he confronts the uh the, the temple uh in particular three activities that are taking place in the temple now notice jesus is not out of control here He's not some self-centered brat trying to gather all this attention to himself. He is making a point. He's behaving like a prophet of God, which he is, who is visually acting out what will happen to the temple. He's condemning the wicked practices of his encountering as well as condemning what the temple has become as a whole. So the three things that are mentioned specifically are he's driving out um, the buyers and sellers, These were the merchants. They were the ones that brought in the animals into the temple to be sold so that people, when they came to the temple, could purchase them and they could actually give them to the priest to be sacrificed. Now, just from an expediency way, rather than people dragging their animals with them to the temple, and you understand how that might be difficult, they just offered this here as as a benefit to the people that were coming. All right, so there's buying and selling that was going on there in the temple. It was big business. Secondly, there's overturning the money changers and pigeon sellers, and, and the, the only currency that the temple allowed was a temple currency. So when you went to actually purchase your animal, you couldn't use the money that you had, you had to go and actually exchange it for temple currency. Then you could go over and you could purchase that animal. But when you went over to the purchase that animal, guess what? They increased the Cost of that animal. What should be, for example, a pigeon that is sold for 25 cents now costs you four dollars. You say, is this California or is you know what's going on? You know, no. But you see how how sinful man, even religious man, takes advantage of people who are in bondage to a system because this is all they know. These are people who are coming to the temple because they are required to come to the temple and they're required to offer sacrifices once a year. And they're coming during this time of Passover and in order to offer those sacrifices, they have to exchange their money, purchase an animal so they can take it to the priest and be sacrificed. And in doing that, oh, they made big business. And listen, if you were a poor person, the only thing you could afford was a pigeon And so that's why he's making it a point here, because what was happening here in the temple, this was not helping people. This was hurting people. In particular, it was hurting the poor. And then, of course, he stopped people carrying anything through the temple. We all understand human nature, don't we? Oh, we don't like to go the long way around. I don't want to go the long way around. Can't we just cut through the temple? I mean, it's kind of like people who may be out today, and they want to, they want to get to the, you know, to the other side over here, and they're like, well, we're just going to come through the doors here and walk through behind Pastor Rod and kind of go over there and stuff like that. And, and you know, it had become allowed. And, you know, it's just a normal practice. They're not only are they just walking through, they're bringing their stuff through. I mean, they're bringing their beds and their carts and their food. and all that. It just became a thoroughfare in the temple. That is not what the temple was created for. And what happened was the respect for the temple had been diminished because the respect for the temple by those who are working in the temple had been lost because the message of the temple and the purpose of the temple and the representation of God that was supposed to be in the temple had been disappearing through the year. So this is what had happened. So Jesus is stopping all that. So taking all this in, what Jesus saw in the temple that day was extortion, bribery, greed, dishonesty, and apathetic disrespect. And it drove him to take righteous action. He became, so to speak, a bouncer for the temple of God. And there was something certainly divine about that. He is... He is standing there as a prophet of God, as God himself, saying, this is not how things should be in the temple. This is the place where God is supposed to reside, and God is supposed to be glorified. Now, notice what Jesus said. And you're going to have to follow a little bit with me, maybe in your Bible, have one passage on the screen. But I want you to notice what he says, verse 17, because he, he, he not only... Um, confronted the temple with his actions, but now he's going to make his actions clear with his words. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Now, when he's saying, is it not written? The assumption is he's speaking to people that what? That know that what he's saying is actually true. They've read the You know, the Old Testament, they understand this actually is written. So he's saying, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. What we have here are two quotes from the Old Testament. The first one is found in Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7. Isaiah 56 and verse 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. That's what we have in, in Mark. Now, this means that God did not plan for the temple to be a national shrine for Israel. The point wasn't, hey, you know, trip advisor, what are the, some of the things I should do when I go to Jerusalem? Number one destination spot, the temple. That wasn't the point. It wasn't supposed to be a shrine. It wasn't supposed to be some kind of museum to be visited for nostalgia's sake. Isaiah 56 and verses 1 through 8 contain God's promise of blessing for all who might think they are excluded from God's salvation. So it mentions the foreigner, it mentions the eunuch, and it mentions the outcast. You can follow along with me in Isaiah 56. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 just so that we feel the weight of it. But also, um, um, you can just listen if you'd prefer to do that. Thus says the Lord. Maintain justice and do what is right, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Happy is the mortal who does this, the one who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and refrains from doing any evil. Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord, say the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and with my walls a monument and a name that sons and daughters, or better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I just hear the language there, speaking to eunuchs. Eunuchs, I want you to come, and you're going to be treated like sons and daughters that are not cut off. Foreigners come. You're not going to be separated from my people. Verse 6. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Thus says the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel. I will gather others to them beside those already gathered. Now friends, this is a weighty passage. Why? Because... The temple at this point in time had not been a place that says, come and you will be welcome. It was a place that put up distinctions and boundaries and blockades and hindered and obstacles so that people couldn't come. But this was supposed to be a place of worship for all the nations where everyone, regardless of race and culture and class, could come and worship the one true God. I mean, isn't that a wonderful thing? Listen, the God of the Old Testament was interested in people outside of Israel. He wanted people outside of Israel to come and to come to his temple where he was on display. But what had happened to the temple? It had been corrupted by neglect and by sin. And so then we move to the second quote, and that is Jeremiah 7:11. It's uh, this, this expression, a den of robbers. And again, I'm going to read from uh, Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 15. So that's a long passage. I, I'm trying to, friends, give you a weight of what is going on here. So please, just, just listen or follow along up on the screen. Because what we have here that Jeremiah says is painfully instructive and informative for us. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates and worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord, God, Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail." Will you steal, will you murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, that's the gods of other countries, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. You kind of get what's going on here the kind of lifestyle they're living, the kind of things that they're doing, and they're coming to the temple and saying, this is the temple of the Lord. We're going to hear and worship God. Has this house which is called by my name be- become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. We won't continue on there, but he, he destroys it. Friends, hear this. It's important for us to recognize here that it was popularly believed in Jesus' day that when the Messiah came, he would purge the temple of Gentiles. Instead, Jesus comes and purges the temple for the Gentiles. So instead of, of bringing people from all tribes and nations into God's presence, they obscured it until no one could find him. Those who are in charge of the temple and those who are working in the temple as God's representatives are are given a scathing rebuke. The temple has become a den of robbers. Now now notice carefully, read this very, very carefully. Not a den for robbers (laughs) because the body of Christ is always a place for sinners to come, right? You have to recognize that. I mean, we are, we, this, is, this is a den for sinners. But it says a den of robbers. In other words, a place where these people, these robbers who were practicing and, and living these things, felt comfortable in not actually worshiping the God of Israel, but doing these things and pretending that their religious system now brought them closer to God. They had robbed people of the one true God. Now, how do the people respond? And I think this is very telling. The religious leaders, of course, how do they respond? They've just been attacked, haven't they? They are determined to destroy him. They don't like what he's saying. And add to that, Jesus was getting a following, a movement, was, was, was listening to Jesus and his words all around them, and certainly they wanted to destroy him. And this is not the first time words like this have been said in the Gospel of Mark, but it's just it's driving further because he's now getting to the heart of the issue, you are promoting and following a religious man-made system that promises much but cannot deliver. How does the crowd respond? <laughs> you just got to think about this. They're just astonished. I mean, they're, they are just like, what in the world is going on? This is all I mean, this is all like radically new to them. This is, this is not the kind of stuff you go to the temple and you see. I mean, this is the center and the heart of religious worship in Israel. And here comes this upstart, and he starts tearing all these things up. They're just like, whoa, what just happened here? So, having seen now Jesus curse the fig tree and Jesus confronting the temple, now we're going to move into what does this mean for me? All right, Jesus now is challenging our faith. This is where he's getting, he's showing us now why this is all important for us. First of all, there's a warning against fruitlessness. And when evening came, they went out of the city and they passed by in the morning and they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots and Peter remembered and said to him, that's Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered see the fig tree had failed its divine assignment and would be destroyed it was no longer fruitful and therefore its use was at an end and similarly the temple because of its faithlessness and fruitlessness would no longer be useful the temple is condemned and it has withered away its roots within a generation Although it would be finished like in 8060 or something like that, it would be destroyed in 8070. The pride and the glory of Israel destroyed. And friends, that can be true with us from a spiritual perspective. It can be true, first of all, of Gateway Bible Church. If we're not careful if we begin to, to drift away from our love for Christ and his word, if we begin to delight in the ceremonies and, and habits of our worship more than the God who deserves our worship. And sometimes, this is how we, we say it in contemporary language, if you worship worship more than you worship God, you have a problem. And sometimes what happens is we, we're so enamored with the, all the, the religiousness of it all, and we forget about God. If we begin to become focused on the outward observances rather than the heart, we too can find ourselves having a radically distorted view of God and his purpose. We can also be neglecting the gospel that sees the cross and Christ crucified as central and essential. And we can be bearing little fruit, if any, although we're involved in religious activity. It can also be true of each person in this room. We can find ourselves chasing after things that might make us feel spiritual. That that latest book, it just kind of, oh, it makes me feel all wonderful and giddy, and I feel like I'm really spiritual because I'm reading this, oh, it's taking me closer to to God, but it's all this fuzzy, non-biblical language of experiences and dreams and nonsense. We can find ourselves enamored with popular leaders and lacking discernment because we're not taking the counsel of God's word seriously. The essential things that are important to the Christian faith can be things that are just set aside step by step by step. And so we have this appeal, or this warning against fruitlessness, but there's an appeal now to exercise faith in God. So, how does Jesus respond to what Peter has just said? And Jesus answered them, all the disciples, have faith in God. The kind of faith that Jesus is talking about is not a barren, empty kind of faith, but a faith that bears fruit. So, rather than putting your faith in, in a religious system that promises much but can't deliver, he's saying, have faith in God who will always deliver. And that looks like, first of all, three things. There's a fruit of this kind of faith. First of all, it's a faith that believes. Now, that might sound a little redundant. But I think in the context of what's going on in this passage, it makes a lot of sense. We've often heard, let's just read verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, friends, honestly, I think some people that we would call, that a part of the health, wealth, and prosperity crowd, will take a passage like this, and they kind of will, will, will seek to live life like they're superheroes. They can just go someplace and say, chair, be moved. Whew, don't hit You know, I just have to have enough faith to believe that that's going to happen, right? I just want to tell you, that's, that's just wrenching this passage out of its context. Jesus has been driving at something really important as he goes into the temple. Now, he is reflecting on it. And I want you to think through this with me, if you would, please. We've often heard the expression, we must have a faith that moves mountains. And that expression comes from this text, as well as other gospel texts. But it generalizes what Jesus is saying here. Carefully read this text with me, if you would, please. It says, truly I say to you, whoever says to this, what? Mountain, singular, singular. There's a particular mountain that Jesus has in mind here. There's a mountain that has been an obstacle to get to God. There's a mountain that boasts of all sorts of of beauty and and wonder if you just come and find your satisfaction there. That is empty. Empty. So this idea of this faith that can move mountains really misrepresents what Jesus is saying here. Yes, certainly we can say there's some symbolism of, of obstacles that you face, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But the text is singular. The mountain that's being talked about here, I take to be the mountain that Jesus was just on, which would be the temple mountain, where he has just revealed all of these problems that are taking place in that temple. Anyone been to Israel? The mountain or the temple sits on a mountain, doesn't it? And as you're walking away back up to Bethany, you're looking back, there it is. There is this mountain. So I take this instruction by Jesus to mean that all the empty promises of a failed man-made religion must be seen for what they really are. Empty, fruitless, failing, directly opposed to all that God is about. And so it must be abandoned. It must be thrown into the sea, which I would say is more symbolic, right? You're, you're getting rid of it. You're just, you're, you're, you're tossing it away. He's saying if you have been living your life trying to pursue God by the empty ritualism of man-made religion, it will not satisfy. And those, the only way I should say that to find faith in God is for any feelings of satisfaction or hope coming from a man-made system or religion must be radically removed, in other words, thrown into the sea. You see, the temple has been exposed for what it is, a corrupt system of manipulation and failure that promises hope and reconciliation that cannot and will not deliver. Why? Because it has abandoned the very God it once represented. Now, friends, this is a hard message, and let's be honest, if, if, if you have grown up in the Judaistic system back in Jesus' day, you've grown up going to the temple, you've grown up trusting in the things that go on at the temple as being what was right, right? I mean, that's how you'd be raised. You'd go through all these ceremonies, you'd go through all these rituals, you'd be thinking about what's taking place in the temple, you'd be giving to the temple, you'd be living your life in the context of the temple and with the people that also have been doing that, and it would be hard for you to abandon it. It would be hard for you to say, you know what, I'm no longer going to go to the temple. I'm not going to put my my rest and my trust in the things that are taking place in the temple. Why? Because it's all you know up to that point. And friends, that's the way it is. There are many, I think, even in this room, who have grown up in a religious system. Catholicism, Mormonism, go down the list. Religiousness. And what Jesus is calling for, for anyone who is in that system, is to say, come out. Abandon it. Throw it into the sea. It does not satisfy. The only thing that satisfies is me. I am the one who brings that Necessary satisfaction. So you must have faith in God by believing what Jesus says about man-made religion, that it is true, and other words what Jesus says is true, and then removing it from your life. It's a call to have faith in God and to abandon man-made religion. Secondly, a second kind of fruit is the fruit of prayer. It's a faith that prayers. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Again, this is not to be wrenched out of its context and and, and misapplied. We can come to God by faith that he can remove the mountain of empty ritualism, Then, certainly we can pray by faith in such a way that the obstacles before us are not too big for a sovereign God to deal with. A faith in God that bears fruit in God-centered prayer recognizes that he is a sovereign creator of the world and can do whatever he pleases. So the obstacles before us, although they seem overwhelming, and, and friends, they, they, they can't. Or they, they seem impossible, and they often are from a human perspective. But we must remember that God is greater than any of those obstacles. Now, when we pray, there's other places that teach us about prayer. We don't pray selfishly demanding things from God. We don't pray seeking to coerce God. But we we do pray by faith in God who is the one who can make a way when there seems no way. Who, Who moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. We just stand back and we marvel. Who turns the hearts of rulers as he wills. Who brings the rain and the sunshine as he sees fit. We don't demand God's Action in our lives but we by prayer we humble ourselves we appeal to God but we set back we say God you're in control but we believe that he can do whatever he wants so God is not a genie to do our bidding he is the great God of the universe to whom we bow down and worship he chooses what exactly is going to take place then there's a faith that forgives and this really rounds it rounds it out, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may, uh, may forgive you your trespasses. We have been the recipients of God's forgiveness, and so we should freely extend forgiveness to others. Think of it this way. A faith that believes in Christ is a faith that forgives like Christ. A faith that believes in Christ is a faith that forgives like Christ. So here this this miracle of this this fig tree points to the need for the miracle of faith and fruitfulness. There's a warning in this text. But there is hope for we who put our faith in God through Christ. Now I want to just finish up with a couple of quick thoughts. As I mentioned, Jesus' warning and cursing of the temple finally bore fruit in AD 70 with the destruction of Herod's temple. It's in ruins, although there are structures that are there today, but the temple is not functioning like it once was. But friends, there is a new temple. There is a new place where Jesus takes his residency, where where the gospel is proclaimed and God is worshiped. And so listen to the Apostle Paul and what he says in 1 Corinthians. First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter three and verse 16. 1 Corinthians three and verse 16, here's what it says. This is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The word you there is a plural you. So he's speaking to the church. So the, the new temple, the, the temple where where God resides now, where the Holy Spirit takes residence, is in his church. So Gateway Bible Church, the gathering of God's people in this church, is the very place where Jesus, where the Holy Spirit, where the triune God takes residence. So the warning that we read in this text are the hard questions that we as a church need to consider. Have we abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have we as a church, are we actually worshiping the God of the Bible or a God of our own making? Do we truly welcome all who come looking for help in God? Or have we set up barriers and obstacles that hinder them or even manipulate stuff out of them for our own benefit? Are we bearing fruit? Has our root withered to the point that we should just close the doors and shut up shop? Friends, there are many beautiful old churches across the United States that would do everyone a favor if they just went, closed the doors, locked them up because they serve no purpose, because the gospel is gone. It's empty. We are the temple. and Jesus is supposed to reside here with us. Secondly, 1 Corinthians chapter six and verse 19. We move now from a collective you to an individual you. And I know there's more in this text that we could talk about, but for sake of time, we're not. It says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own. So it says here that our very bodies are the temple, or are a temple in which God just ponder that thought ponder the fact that, that as Alexei shared with us he, he came to faith in Christ he, he comes you know, in the picture of baptism he comes to walk in newness of life at that point of conversion something radically happened a new residency took place God living in Alexei why? because Alexei just like all of us who know Christ, are a temple of God. So are you filling your temple, that would be your, your bodies or your being, with thoughts and actions and attitudes and behaviors that should be found in God's temple? Do you exercise faith in God? Do you pray believing? Do you forgive others as Jesus Christ has forgiven you? Or are you barren or parched? hungry and lost, dear friends, there's only one who can satisfy. There's only one who can bring you rest. There's only one who can reconcile you to God and his name is Jesus. Psalm 1 says this. Blessed. Uh, The word blessed means just just not just happy, but joyful and just, just full of, of, of the right things. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree. You might want to put in there fig tree. <laughs> Planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Friends, don't get sucked up by man-made religion. Bow humbly before Jesus Christ himself, who satisfies completely. Lord, help us today to contemplate the importance of what it is that you have displayed for us in this text. There's so many things out there, even under the umbrella of Christianity, that seem to scream at us, come here, this is where the answer is. But Lord, you are not present there. It's a facade, it's it's an empty promise. But Lord, may we see the church as something beautiful, as what you've created in which you dwell, and that we, as as your children who gather together as the church, are little temples gathering together to be that temple, because, Lord, that is where you reside, and, Lord, would you help us as a church and as individuals to not be like the, the fig tree that is without fruit but to be a tree that is planted by the rivers of water that is feasting on your word that is that is attentive to all the kind of scoffing and wickedness that is out in the world that is growing bearing fruit healthy leaves because you are our great god we worship you today we praise you we thank you for this warning and for this encouragement And Lord, I pray for for that person who may be here today who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that they would see the beauty of your gospel, that your death on that cross was accomplished for the purpose of paying for our sin and for their sin. Lord, would you allow your gospel to take root, to bear fruit in that life, we ask in your name. Amen.